Welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Billington, and I'm joined, as always, by the pork scratchings to my pint of ale, Timo Albus Daly, and the Aperol Spritz to my summer's afternoon, Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you both? I'm good, thank you. I've been to Concours of Elegance at Hampton Court this uh, palace this weekend, and saw this thing. Um, not quite sure what it's called, is it a car? I can't quite remember. We're off to a flying start on this podcast, aren't we? Um, I think it's called the sun. Ah, yeah, big glowy yellow ball in the sky. Yeah, it's made a sudden yeah. reappearance here in the UK and it's taken everyone by a bit of surprise. It was way up in the 20 degrees at the moment, which is unusual for September. It was hot. It was summery. I mean, I had a lovely setting, lovely cars. I couldn't really ask for much more, really. The food was good as well, which some events you just kind of, you get a burger or a hot dog, which is fine. But if you go to as many sort of, I don't want to complain being like, you go to as many events as she goes to, you get a standard for it. (laughs) But it was nice to have some variety. I had a um, crispy chicken. It was like uh, sweet and spicy with rice. Really nice. And then, yeah, got to sit in a Ferrari 458 Speciale and really comfortable. Um, so I guess... You'd I guess hope like, so. Yeah. Um, it's actually for sale if anyone wants to buy it. Um, I'm we'll now... chip in, shall we? Yeah. It's, uh, so I guess, say thanks to the guys at, I think it's Kahuna, and they gave me a cap which if anyone knows, I'm an avid cap collector, so... This is true, you do, like it. you do like a cap. Yeah. I do. Timo, what have you been up to? I am, I am also good. I had a nice and quiet weekend, and the Grand Prix wasn't terrible, so, you know, you can't complain too much about life. Yeah, it wasn't the worst Grand Prix, and I suppose at this point... Which, which I realise is an extra low bar we've had to set recently, but still, it shouldn't be... There was always ignored that it got over the bar and it excelled a little bit extra more than we could have probably hoped for. There was there was enough good bits, and we really ought to dive into those good bits and indeed all the things that sort of rather led up to it as well. So we'll dive into what the hell has happened, and um, we'll kick off with the obvious headline that comes out of this: is Max Verstappen makes history by winning ten races in a row. This is the most of any driver, and out of the past twenty five races, Red Bull has won twenty four. That is a simply phenomenal statistic, and speaks for their sort of due diligence as a team. But equally, when you look at just Max's stat there. That that is frankly impressive. And a little bit amusing of the fact that of all of, of the one Grand Prix they haven't won in those 25, it was Mercedes that won that. And in the era of we're going to have new regulations, closer racing, so it's going to be all over the place in terms of who's going to be winning races. And we get this. I know I'd go on about it a little bit, but I'd just like to point that just it's impressive. Don't get me wrong, the Red Bull have managed to do this, but I do find it funny that they managed to do it in the era specifically designed or in theory designed to do the complete opposite. 
yeah, we're supposed to be in a spell of very tight and packed racing, and we've seen an a simply unprecedented spell of dominance from Red Bull. But as not to poo-poo the rest of the season, it's always this this sort of strange argument that everyone actually enjoys using of as soon as you ignore Red Bull, it's actually been an absolute firecracker of a season. When you look at the podium potentials and the rest of the sort of top top five, it's been great. But I know Lemay, you've got some thoughts to dive in with. Yeah, um, kind of similar thoughts as well. Um, obviously, incredibly impressive that both Max and Red Bull have managed to always have, just to always be on it, to have sort of the reliability of the car, the strategy, obviously Max is driving. It's incredible. And obviously we, ha- we haven't seen anything like it. And then sort of going on to what Timo was saying, if you do take out Red Bull, it's all the We've other... We've been trying. <laughs> yeah, well, all the other teams are so up and down this year that in terms of just, just take away Red Bull, we have had such a close fight between everyone else because it's... With Red Bull, the car seems to just like every track. But with all the other teams that the cars seem to be very track specific and so you never quite know what you're going to get if you want an argument as to how jostled this season has been i believe that this is we've only had one race weekend that hasn't seen a change in the driver's standings this year i think i'm correct in saying that i think possibly Spain was the only weekend that sort of didn't result in any significant change in the driver's order. Every other weekend, there has been a driver moving up, so I'm moving down, people jumping around and swapping. And I think that's a testament to, while on the face of it, it might not seem like closer racing at the end of the day, what we have seen is a season that's been far more jumbled up and ignoring the top two, kind of unpredictable. I think the problem isn't the fact that we haven't had a close racing, because we obviously have. It's just the key area where it's needed the most has mm. been virtually nil. And the only time there has been a potential for it, it's then been 10, 14 laps at most before that gets switched up again, even in mixed conditions so far. So it's there's there's a half a point and there's not half a point in the glass half full kind of analogy there. So it's it's good, but it's not, and it's kind of it's kind of flipped way of it working that it was meant to i feel like because again if you say like we take red bull out of it it looks great but you don't watch a grand prix to see who finishes second or third you want to have see who comes first and well as ambitious as we may choose to be with our predictions some weeks we all know what's going to happen at this point yeah, I think it's it's a fairly sort of clear set thing. But we'll get on to the rest of the race in due course. We'll dive back to just before the start of the race weekend where um, George Russell and Lewis Hamilton signed new contracts with Mercedes with both staying for 2024 and 2025. And this happened probably not long after we cut the mics on the preview. So it was sort of, again, that annoying thing that always happens. But I think this is a bit of bad news for George Russell because if he wants a championship and Mercedes gets good, surely Lewis is going to beat him to it. And has this hampered his chances at a title? I sort of disagree. I would say no, or at least in George's mind, no. Obviously, he has a driver's mindset. So in his mind, he believes he's the best. He's got just as much chance as Lewis to win a championship. I don't. 
think he would have joined Mercedes otherwise, but I guess the onus is on him to prove that he has what it takes to bring that fight to Lewis if Mercedes brings sort of a championship winning car. And you never know how a season's going to pan out. And I don't believe you can go into it thinking Hamilton is going to outright beat Russell. I think it's still very... No, I guess a bit more than 50-50, maybe sort of 60-40 Hamilton's way. You know, you can't disregard Hamilton's racing skill. You know, he's won seven championships. But at the same time, I don't think you can completely disregard Russell as well. He's not going to go into sort of maybe next season or the season after that thinking, oh, I need to wait now until Hamilton's retired before I'm going to win a championship. There's an inter-team battle I also think on the flip side of that. between sort of Nico Rosberg and Valtteri Bottas is that sort of having that ability to compete more ably against Lewis. Obviously with Nico, it took a hell of a lot out of him to do it, but he did it in that one season. But with Bottas, we always saw this, oh, I'm going to compete with Lewis, oh, I'm going to compete with Lewis. And he started out, but was never able to keep it up. Do we think with George, he's that sort of, he's got that mid-ground where he's a little closer to being able to really put the fight to him? I think he's got that mid-ground and also to go a little bit off what Elimay was saying, he does have that benefit that I don't think Rosberg or Bottas did have in that he doesn't necessarily have to wait until Hamilton retires to have a good shot at the title, but he has that option because he will just be there longer than Hamilton will be because he's younger. So if that's if he has to wait, he's had a lot of time waiting to get to good things before and even then the good thing was not as good as it was supposed to be because it came at the time when Mercedes dipped. So he, he's proven he can wait for things to come his way again. And if this is what he can do with the mediocre cars that he's having to drive at the moment, it, by comparison to what the good cars and the great cars look like, then once that opportunity comes his way, if Lewis is there, he can do what Nico did in 2016. And maybe it only happens once, but once is enough. And if Lewis isn't there, Whoever is in that second seat is arguably going to be at least as experienced as him or less. So they're not going to be more experienced unless something really random happens. Ronzo is still going and decides to destroy Mercedes at that point. So Neither I think it's, finally it, gets it, the call up to Mercedes. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think it's bad news. It just means that he may have to wait a little longer or potentially burn himself out a la Rosberg in order to get what he wants. And then after that, what does his career look like? Because... You'd, I don't know if Rosberg would have been able to do a successful title defence in 2017 if he'd stayed. I, it would have been I also, interesting to see, certainly. I think it's one of most sports great what-ifs of what if Rosberg stuck around for that extra season just to see if he could go for the double or if he could even have a chance at fighting Hamilton. I also think as well, Russell isn't going to want to be known as the driver who won a championship once Hamilton left the team. He's going to want to prove himself and that he can, he's as good as Hamilton. Suppose that also depends on the level of competition he has for a championship, regardless of if Lewis is there or not, because say Max is still there, Charles is still there, and Lando's still there, and say Williams are in the mix with Albon just because that would be fun as well. If it's an incredibly close 2012 ish season like that, and he can still beat all of them. Does it matter if Hamilton's there or not? Because he's still beaten arguably all these other great drivers who, in theory, by that point, the grid will be a lot more even in terms of the cars and it'll be more driver-specific to see who can win there. 
I mean, for instance, Ferrari are looking at bringing a very new design for 2024. They're sort of aping the Red Bull design and moving to something that they seem to be a lot more competitive and what they from the off at this point seem to think is going to be certainly their not necessarily their magic bullet but it's going to be the step forward they need if that puts Ferrari back into the mix Williams are getting better and better by the race weekend McLaren are growing more and more comfortable with their car like you said we could see that sort of fantastic sort of 2012 was it sort of nine different winners in nine different races scenario or something which was incredible and I think if you're the driver that's able to come out of that field with the title and 2012, it was a, a championship that went down to the wire. It was Vettel versus Alonso in Abu Dhabi. I think I'm correct in saying that much. And it was, again, one of those things of you still had a championship fight on your hands. It doesn't matter the fact that Vettel wasn't fighting against, say, Button in the brawn from a few years prior or sort of a previously phenomenally dominant driver. He was up against the rest of the field, which, if anything, is almost more of a, a show of talent is the fact that against an even broader field, not just someone who's driving the same car as you, so you know how it's going to perform, you're going up against so many more unknowns. I think if Russell were able to pull that off, it would be just as good as getting that championship against Lewis. Speaking of news that obviously was announced literally after we cut the mics, Alfa Romeo unveiled a special livery for, for the weekend right after we finished recording, which sort of went not very well and then went well enough, I suppose. They suffered with um, some technical issues through the practice sessions, but then Bottas came home with a point, and I know we'll speak a bit more on Bottas later on. So what do we think of the livery, at least, aesthetics-wise? I loved it. I want them to keep it. I think it's much better than the one they've got now. Musingly the same, it seemed to me that their special liveries, they've done at least two this season, both have been better than their actual livery, which is quite amusing. You know how to make one. Why did you not do this at the start of the year? Much better. It is a really nice looking livery and it really leans into that sort of Alfa Romeo Italian passion. Of course, Bottas coming home with a point at Alfa Romeo as their sort of title partner's home race is certainly something worth sort of giving a nod to. And I think it's, yeah, it almost sort of broke the special livery curse as well which is quite good we had two curses broken this weekend of course the monza curse and with Bottas to a certain extent the special livery curse and the third thing that was broken was my heart as a ferrari fan not getting that win but oh well um the practice sessions rolled around oh you've got a final interjection go on yeah just to say i realized this week or weekend this will be obviously alfa romeo's last home race won't it until it goes to Salba for a bit and then Audi in 26. But there is still rumour to an extent that it will be Alfa Romeo Haas. And it's also the last European Grand Prix of the season. How quickly has that gone? Yeah, that has raced by. It's fine. We've still got two American Grand Prix to get through and at least two absolutely bull ones in the Middle East. So it's fine. Still. Um, We'll move into the practice sessions. Checo managed to bin it in FP2 and was uh, suffering from an oil leak, I think, afterwards, which saw Red Bull replacing the power unit in his car. But it was one from their allotted pool, so they didn't hamper his qualifying position. Uh, and Felipe Drogovic seemed fairly at home in the AMR23. He hasn't driven that car since Bahrain in preseason testing, and it's developed an awful lot through the first half of the season, certainly. Um, so it's a slightly different car than he might have been used to, regardless. On track, he seemed 
at home and competent, certainly more competent than the driver he was replacing, um, who suffered a fueling issue in FP2 and retired early on. Then we sort of shuffled into qualifying where uh, both Alpha Tauris were close to getting into Q3. In fact, it was a weekend of closes for Alpha Tauri. Sonoda then went on to fail to make the start. Um, so yeah, closely making the start, I suppose. Uh, breaking down on the formation lap, this was recorded as a DNS and it was an engine failure. So this marks our first did not start of the season, which is quite a exciting and possibly creeping in reliability woes bearing in mind what engine is in the back of that alpha tauri the only I... way that gets interesting for me is if we have another eight dns's from a certain red bull for the rest of the season and even then checo probably can't do anything to get that first place away from max i don't it, max would have to score nothing and checo win all the races i think which oh, is yeah that's what i'm saying like even if max scores nothing checo i still don't believe that he will then win every race <laughs> to be able to do that because it's no errors. yeah um so anyway we record our first did not start the season early may um i was just gonna say it's kind of crazy how this is our first dns of the season when last season monza um had the last driver to dnf sort of the all the drivers had dnf'd apart from lance stroll and it took him until monza last year to do it yeah that's interesting oh yeah i forgot that monza was like the last one for everyone to have some sort of retirement yeah oh, interesting um Anyway, so race kicks off and Sainz holds off Verstappen for the opening stint. He has a good 14 laps in him. Um, and then as the pit stop phases come through, the order was shuffled up a lot. Perez somehow ended up leading lap, then Piastri did. Lewis led a lap as well, and finally Max retook the lead. However, crucially, this marks Sainz as the driver with the most laps led this season that isn't a Red Bull driver. Um, he's led more laps than Hamilton, Norris and Russell combined. And this weekend has very much proven to be a testament to his consistency across the season. And I think that's something that's sort of worth bearing in mind. He was up until this point, the only driver out of the top teams to have not scored a podium, ignoring Lance Stroll. Everyone else in that sort of top ranking had scored a podium. Um, he was the highest ranked driver to have not scored a podium and all that sort of how we cut the statistic so he's sort of finally got the podium he's led the laps he's proven that he is very much the driver that Ferrari has been sort of utilising through this season for that consistency and reliability um, Perez made his way past the Ferraris leaving them to battle it out for the final podium position while Verstappen disappeared from the lot of them so like I've already mentioned Sainz is no longer the highest placed driver to po not podium this year that honour goes to the totally disinterested Lance Stroll I don't know if anyone saw his post-race interview in the media pen he just did not want to be there I mean, I zoned out as soon as you said Lance Stroll, so no, I did not watch that. But it's good to know that both of us didn't want to be there for that interview. Yeah, he just... They barely monosyllabic sort of replies. I know, I know we're going to talk about him possibly a little bit later, but you've got to think, just even if he is still there next year, you've got to hope that they're at least talking about the possibility of him not being there next year. I, At this point, that's all I'm asking for, just the conversation to be had. Because I know that it's we, we'll go into it, but I'm just like, just at least talk about it. That's all. Those conversations have to be in place now, surely. They, they've got to be looking at the disparity between science, uh, between Stroll and Alonso, rather, and going, come on, guys, we could at least have someone who wants to be in the car. And you've got Felipe Drogovic chomping at the bit, waiting. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, 
Anyhow, uh, Lewis made a bit of a goof battling Piastri, though he did later apologise after the race, actually, which was quite good. I think it's the sort of thing we've come to expect from Hamilton, the older statesman within the sport. And I think he learned a lot from 2021 battling around Monza as well. Um, the McLarens, however, while we're on the subject of them, struggled to get past the Williams of Albon, whose straight line speed was enough to stay ahead, as they'd found in Canada and Silverstone. Um, Bottas picked up the final points position at home for Alfa Romeo, so that's not too bad. No, we've already mentioned that. And and Aston Martin will sort of come back to them now as they really didn't have a good weekend in general. Alonso was off the pace in qualifying and struggled to keep up with the field in the race. Stroll, meanwhile, was way off the pace in quali and did little to remedy that in the race. Ferrari have now overtaken Aston Martin in the constructors' standings. Aston Martin is slipping backwards fast, and this could be the argument, the fact that they need that second driver to be at least in the top 15 I mean, I mean, points is also necessary, but sure. But I'm also going back to the glass half full, half empty thing. On the one hand, yes, they are going backwards a bit too quickly. On the other hand, for a team with only one driver, they're doing pretty damn good. Not doing too badly. Yeah, as Aston Martin as a whole, they really seem to struggle for sort of raw pace when it's a track with long straights. I think we saw it in Azerbaijan too and... I think we saw it somewhere else as well, but I can't quite remember. They seem to do better when it's fast tracks, but they're sort of having to, it's fast cornering, like sort of Saudi Arabia. It's not just a complete straight. Um, But yeah, I think Fernando Alonso perhaps did the best he could, but Lance Stroll, you qualified last. It's the kind of thing where, okay, yes, Drogovic was in the car for FP1, but you're also an experienced Formula 1 driver, supposedly. So regardless of the issues in FP2 and FP3, you should, and the fact that you've driven round Monza a fair few times, there's a simulator, and again, you're meant to be an experienced F1 driver. You should still be able to do that and do better than the guy who's just gotten into the AlphaTauri for the second weekend in a row who has virtually no experience in Formula 1 whatsoever. And again, don't get me wrong, I like the guy, Logan Sargent, but you should be able to out-qualify him considering the car and the rookiness of him. And then potentially the Alfa Romeo's at least because just of how wildly all over the place they've been. So bye-bye that estimate, at least in the top 15, as you say, Jesse. It's really not asking for much in the grand grand scheme of things there. And it just... You do wonder. Yeah, when you when you look at the cars that Lance Stroll should be qualifying ahead of, it's very easy to basically pinbox it and go, depending on the weekend, it's either going to be both Hasses, both Alfa Romeos. Um, oh, that's, I forgot about the Hasses as well. So another yeah. two places, at least P13 then. Yeah, so you've got both Hasses, both Alfa Romeos, maybe both Alfa Tauris and certainly Sargent. So you're looking at, there should be seven cars behind you on the grid each weekend and this weekend the only thing behind him was the man with the green flag that waves it to say that the race is good to get underway that is he probably thought it was an Martin fan yeah it was like oh look green flag it matches my car fantastic oh, I don't know. where it's... are all these drug cars in front of me go oh the race oh oh, oh it started right by yeah oh look the lights match my car oh that means go yeah it's it's poor um we'll get on to other poor drivers um as we don't want to take away too many of uh, some conversation points that might reoccur. Um, so we'll dive into our winners first. And Timo, we'll start with your winner. Realise it may seem odd for me to have chosen Sergio Perez, considering I've already been kind of throwing some mud his way. 
but he is my winner for the Sunday drive alone, especially as that was the recovery he needed after binning it in FB2. And it, it's just curious that, once again, he's proven that in very specific circumstances, he can drive very well and get up to that P2 and be that second driver that is key for Red Bull to keep him for next year, even though he's contracted, but we know contracts don't necessarily mean anything. Certainly and at Red Bull. He, exactly. And I do wonder, we may talk about this a little bit now, we might talk about it later, I'm not sure, but Lawson obviously being very impressive, Ricardo still being in contention for that Red Bull seat. If they decide that they want Lawson in the Alpha Terra for next year and decide, eh, sod it, why don't we put Ricardo in the Red Bull or even put Yuki in the Red Bull? Essentially, anyone that isn't Perez, and Perez might have just woken up suddenly and realized, I might be in a little bit of danger here, and his driving's finally got there again, and I just wonder where that's been since, what, Australia kind of time, because he started off pretty, pretty, yeah, okay, but yeah, it's it's, it's been a long streak of, Max Verstappen just doing Miami-ish. Miami, Miami forwards just, is really Verstappen's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was nice to see him back, but it was just kind of, where have you been? Because you've clearly not forgotten how to do this. And what, just, just where has it been? So, you know, we, sounds like he's a spinner, but he's actually a winner in my book. The one it's, thing I will It's a weird do, kind of tough love thing here. The one thing I will do is play complete devil's advocate in favour of Sergio Perez here because so you're trying to agree with me I'm agreeing with you but not quite so strongly what I'm agreeing I'm agreeing more vehemently if anything um I think Perez has done exactly the job that Red Bull have needed of him this season on average it, you've got to take it a, a complete average you've got to look at how the team has performed the fact that it is miles ahead from any other constructor on the grid I don't think that any other constructor could realistically take the title from them at this point. And I'm surprised I haven't had the chance to mathematically work out how early they could take it. But I wouldn't be surprised if Singapore or Japan, we see one of the trophies of this year get handed out and they go, Red Bull, well done, congratulations, no surprises. Um, but equally, when you look at Perez, you look crucially at the gap that he's allowed Verstappen to pull from the rest of the field by always being in that second or third place and really stopping and else hoovering up the major points. And then even then you look at the gap that he's got to Alonso. Alonso's on 170 points. You've got to go forwards nearly 50 points, nearly two entire race wins to get to Perez. It's down to the fact of how good that Red Bull is and how close everyone is behind us who we were talking about at the top of the podcast. So I, I get exactly where you come from in terms of from Red Bull's perspective for a team, it's kind of the perfect drive because he's not he's good, but he's not good enough to worry Max at all, at least not consistently. And they're just kind of happy they don't have a Vettel Weber situation or a Max and Ricardo situation from the early days. Or a Lewis I and Kito just, situation. Or yeah, I was trying to look more at just Red Bull specifically. Um however, you've got to think that even though they're dominating so much, when you have that, you want to then try and beat your own record and we can be even more dominant and have just a re- an even stronger second driver. And that's because at the same time, even if we take Ricardo out of the contention for a moment, what happens to all these drivers that are going into Alpha Tauri? They can't all just get funneled off to other teams along the grid that aren't Red Bull. You join the Red Bull Junior Programme more or less with the intention of you're going to get the chance to go into Red Bull someday. And Yuki is getting very close to being in Pierre Gasly territory of 
you guys are never going to give me the seat, are you? And at least Gasly got it for five minutes and been granted proved that maybe he shouldn't, but at least he got that opportunity, whereas Yuki doesn't even seem to be getting anywhere near that opportunity right now. And it just kind of asks questions about that sort of, do you, we just have one more year of Checo and we just let that happen? And then he goes to 2025 and we deal with that problem next year? Or do we cut things early because they've recruited yet another Red Bull junior to Bastion Montoya recently? So um, what do we do with... I thought they picked up another, oh, another one as well. Oh, yeah, sorry. I was thinking of Pepe Marti. That's the um, one. So, yes, again, you can see how easy it is to forget how many of them there are. So you've got to make space at some point, and Perez should be happy with this lot anyway, considering that he could have been out of the sport a few years ago already. Mm. But, I, I mean, if I, I'll, I'll go against your argument quickly on what could Red Bull do more of. If you look at the how many races we've had, They've secured six one twos and two one threes. There's there's not a lot of scope for them to really improve apart from an entire season of one twos at this point. I kind of have a counter argument in that I think Sergio Perez should be doing better. If you if you had Max Verstappen as a constructor alone and took away Red Bull, he'd be leading the constructors championship on his own. So majority of those points for Red Bull come from Max Verstappen and sure Sergio Perez is second um, and Fernando Alonso isn't quite um, I, th- I think Sergio Perez has got second I don't think Fernando Alonso is going to get him or anyone else really for that matter but Aston Martin haven't had a car that's always been there it was yes very strong at the start of the season but it's not now so Red Bull their car is in a ra- in a league of its own. Sergio Perez should consistently be on the podium at least, and he's not. I mean, as far as Miami, he was, and then obviously um, he was again. So obviously, P two, P one, P five, P one, P two, P sixteen, P four, P six, P three, P six, P three, P two, P four, P two. So he's been close enough. But I mean, it's the whole idea of if you take out if Max as a driver on his own. If you asked Sergio to this point to have gotten second in all of them, that would give him two hundred and fifty-two points, I think it is, which would put him as the third constructor. So it'd be Max Verstappen, Mercedes, Sergio Perez. So it. But even as it stands at the moment, Perez on 219 keeps him ahead of Aston Martin. So that puts him as at least the fourth constructor. It's, it's not still... a fair shot, though, considering Aston Martin are driving one-handed. Yeah, but at that point, if you're taking just Perez's points as they stand from this season, not Perez's perfect world of all this po- all P2s to this point, he's still ahead of Aston Martin, which is a team with one and a half drivers in it he's doing well I don't want to completely disparage Perez he's doing exactly Do not get me wrong. As, as, a, as a winner he is doing well this is definitely the winner's category I just think he's still in danger there, there is going to be danger Bull because Red Bull yeah because Red Bull and I think that potentially they might again shoot themselves in the foot due to short-sightedness I think maybe and don't get me wrong I like Logan Sargent but maybe you should go and partner your winner Jesse he, um, 
Perez and Albon would be a very interesting pairing. Um, that's a nice segue as well. Thank you very much. Um, Albon is now in a bit of a field of his own, actually. He's a long way ahead of Hulkenberg. 21 points, plays nine, though Ocon on 36 has a strong lead over him again. It'll be a big ask for the Williams driver to chase down the Alpine pair ahead of him uh, through the rest of this season. And equally, though, if it did end now, it would see Alex as the first driver since George in 2021 from the Italian Grand Prix to the Russian Grand Prix to score points back to back for Williams. It'd be the team's highest standing since they came fifth in 2017. And he'd be their highest driver finish since Felipe Massa in 2017 when he wrapped the season in 11th. Albon has done a huge amount. And this weekend has again been much like Zandvoort before. While it's been a bit disappointing because the team wanted that little bit more, the end of the day it's another haul of points that the start of the season we would have all been hugely surprised at him for getting the the problem is it's all very much offset by his teammate who we will get to in due course but now is a perfect time to sort of loop back to the podium for ellie may's winner i've gone for carlos signs i think he had a really strong weekend and throughout the race he battled hard every lap whether that was with the red bull drivers or his own teammate that podium did not come easy for him, and it was well-deserved. I mean, first driver that isn't a Red Bull driver to sort of actually really lead a race. I mean, you could kind of tell by the radio that Max Verstappen was always going to get him. He was just sort of biding his time, and uh, Max was constantly pushing him into making an error, which then he uh, he eventually did do but I think overall really he had a pretty tough race and I think third was thoroughly deserved I think you could argue that error was coming regardless of if Max was there or not just because of how hard he was pushing the tyres so it was kind of Max just happened to be there yeah, that was exactly the point I was about to jump on and say. I think it was lap two coming into Parabolica or Curva Alboreto um, where Max said on the radio, I can see him sliding around so much, his rear tyres are going to go. And you heard um, Giampiero Lambiassi on the radio going, yep, just wait, wait for the moment, wait for the moment. Because at the end, the Ferrari was quick in a straight line. It was enough in the early days for Perez to, uh, for Sainz to be able to really defend against Verstappen. It was for a good long while. It had the straight line speed that you sort of very much need at Monza. But at the end of the day, trying to get corner exit after cooking those tyres because it had bled off so much rear downforce to get that high end speed he didn't have the purchase and the car was just beginning to slide so much and we saw that return at the end of the race where it was almost Carlos Sainz Senior rally cross sideways the car through every turn trying to catch and hold these slides because he was absolutely wringing his neck to stay ahead of Charles and I, I still rate Charles highly as a driver his racecraft and his ability to extract performance from a car is phenomenal and arguably one of the best drivers when it comes to extracting performance from a car on the grid at the moment and the fact that we saw sort of peak 10 out of 10 100% Carlos Sainz this weekend driving his absolute best against that was frankly phenomenal and is a testament to one how much he wants to stay at ferrari and two how much it means to him and equally a fact of there is that next level of carlos and if we are able to give him a slightly more competent platform we could see something fantastic indeed i'm not saying we'll see a world champion but i think we'll see him banging in a few more podiums through the rest of his career if ferrari get next year's car set up right 
it could be interesting to see the fight between those two. And Ferrari seemed happy to let them fight as well, which was interesting. The last thing I want to say on that is that I think from watching last year, Leclerc and Verstappen definitely have very different driving styles, as we saw. I think where Carlos fits in is he's halfway between the two of them. He's definitely the more aggressive of the Ferrari drivers, but that is beneficial. And I don't think we've had the opportunity to see that fully in force. And we have to include Max in the we there because I think he was expecting to get past him a bit sooner than he actually did, even with the tyre situation, because... He's it's kind of it's like Russell when he went to Mercedes. You've never really seen him have that opportunity consistently up to that point to fight for something that matters so much. And we arguably still haven't had enough of that with Carlos because Ferrari are Ferrari and they're just not there yet. So I don't know if he's better than Leclerc, but he's definitely able to take the fight to him as we saw. And I think you were saying about a championship, I think that could be a case of if the chips fall just the right way, that could be a one-time championship, which I think we'd all be happy enough with Eddie May especially, but I think there is potential for it, just not necessarily if you look at the top championship drivers, your Lewis's, your Max's, your Vettel's, he's not there, but he could easily do what Rosberg or Button did. There is every argument for that, I think. Yeah, and I don't want to make it about tire chat, but yes, you do. I, I sort of, <laughs> I said before the race uh, started, I feared almost the podium we're going to get or how sort of well Ferrari go will be determined on tire degradation, and I think that's kind of what we saw. I think the level of determination Carlos had could have maybe perhaps kept him in at first if it wasn't for the fact that that Ferrari cooks its tyres so damn quickly. Yeah, I think the the tyres here weren't necessarily the issue. I think it was definitely the way that Ferrari uses its tyres. But at the end of the day, when it comes to Ferrari, there was interesting conversations coming out of the red pit boxes by the end of the race. And it was a case of the fact that they knew that the Red Bull was going to be... something they weren't able to compete with this weekend so for them third was essentially the highest they could attain the fact that they came home third and fourth to ferrari represents the maximum points they could have gotten at their home grand prix and the fact that's now put them ahead of aston martin and it's to them to get a podium in front of the tifosi with that much of a display of racing i think will have sort of stabilised and reaffirmed Italy's love and support for the team and I think it will have gone a long way to bolstering sort of why people love Ferrari I know for me it certainly did to an extent you sort of look at it and go "Ah, there we go that's what I'm after I don't care that it's for third and fourth but that's Formula 1 racing is both drivers going hammer and tongs for pretty much the entire race Science was at it the entire race and then add it after the race when he had to run after someone who pinched his watch so it wasn't an easy weekend for Sainz but he came out on top in both instances the best race that Ferrari have had all season yeah they're only three, third and fourth mm. that's I think they're as a team certainly their highest finishing positions they've never had a, yeah. a third and fourth before they've had a third and fifth a second and a sixth 
Um, but yeah, third and fourth marks their highest finishing position as a team across the weekend. I think their their highest score. It finally result. means that Carlos gets a podium and isn't the only driver in that top bracket of the championship without one. Now he's finally able to break that that particular problem. Yeah, Lance Stroll is now that weird line through the middle where there's no podiums because then even beneath him, it, you pick up the podiums again where you go to Gasly with a third and Ocon with a third. Maybe that'll be my world prediction for Vegas because if it would happen anywhere, it would be Vegas for Lance Stroll. And Stroll finally just be gets pure, If he somehow manages to avoid the chaos that that inevitably is going to be, he would somehow be a sneaky enough little thing to get through that and to get on the podium somehow. I want to go the other way. I reckon we'll see more and more drivers below Stroll in the standings getting podiums before Lance I would prefer does. that, personally. but Because in reality, all we've really got to do in all likelihood is get Piastri to get a podium and Albon to get a podium. Piastri is probably going to get a podium this season. I don't think My, my next thing would just be that he's comfortable for second in Vegas and then Bottas pips him like he did in Baku. <laughs> Another street circuit, another Bottas pipping. But that would give Bottas a podium, and I think that is on my year-long predictions. Anyway, we'll move on from... Uh, actually, you know, we're talking about Lance Stroll. Ellie May, why don't you give us your spinner? Yeah, it's Boy, Lance it Stroll. Um, you've cost your team a place in the Constructors' Championship, and I don't think now you're going to get that back. You know, you've cost your team... Certainly millions, and I there is at the minute. I just I haven't seen any passion from Lance Stroll. It's okay, his daddy's a billionaire. It doesn't matter if he costs the money, Ellie May. It's all about the taking part. Surely he's not even on a salary. He just sort of gets pocket money, doesn't he? Yeah, but I think he gets paid like nine million. No, why? <laughs> why would he want something? You didn't, ask, he... you didn't ask me why. I just you just asked if he gets paid. Yeah, but it's Aston Martin's still, you know, sort of a separate entity. Lawrence Stroll isn't just going to top that money up because his son has lost them that many millions. Um, I wouldn't mind so much if there was that passion, that drive to do well, but it just doesn't seem to be there. He's sort of really, it looks like he sort of has lost his love for the sport. And it's a bit like, why are you here? We've been asking that exact question of him since he joined in 2017. But I mean, we're asking that of him more so now than ever, because he's now up against his second world champion teammate and is being schooled week in, week out by not just his teammate but by lesser cars on the grid as well there is no and normally if you have contrast. a teammate of that caliber you'd learn from them so that you could improve you've got sebastian vettel in the car with you you've got fernando alonso in the car with you and arguably any of his other teammates have generally just been better than him because they've had more experience for the most part so you'd think that by now if you have a weekend where say you miss FP1 because there's a young driver in there and say FP2 and FP3 don't quite go plan. it's not going to matter because you're in a half-decent car and you're an experienced Formula 1 driver. You're getting the top 14, 15 easily enough. Oh. And equally the fact that it's not just the fact that he's got Alonso in the car next to him. At points this season there has been Alonso coaching him through the goddamn race. 
and Gad has not worked, like Alonso in Baku telling it or suggesting to the team what brake bias and what diff settings to use for that final turn. In Canada, telling him where to look at and where to defend and where, and oh, good overtake there from Lance. I saw it on the screen. I'm driving on my own in third. I'm watching the TV as I go around. How has your teammate got that extra sort of capacity that the car is giving him this sort of support? Meanwhile, you're fighting to even keep it facing the right way in 14th. You know the um, last year when um, a race would get boring and someone would always put the meme up of a man with a stick poking the teethy, like, do something. I just, I'm using that meme for Lance Stroll, just poking with a stick, just do something, you know, overtake people, get a good qualifying lap, you know, just do Something that was the interesting thing, though, because in a weird, slight defense for Lance Stroll, which I know I must be having something odd going on in my head, P20, he was in P13 at one point, and I think he did finish a bit higher. Even when he overtakes, though, we never see it because no one thinks it's worth looking at because, like, oh, he's just somehow jumped up there. But again, I think it's because it's only into P13, you're like, yeah, and do the rest of it, and then we'll start showing it. And it's like, but again, he proves that he can overtake these arguably worse cars. But it's just, again, that's the bare minimum that's expected. So you're poking him anyway. He's doing something. You're just not poking him hard enough. It could be worse. You could be Ocon. What happened to the man? Um, well, he suffered a steering failure. That's That's what happened. But it's sort of midway through the race, he retired, you just sort of looked down at the ball, you're like, oh, what's happened to Ocon? It was very much the Clarkson meme of, oh no, anyway. It didn't even get like a mention on the TV coverage, I don't think. Like they didn't sort of... Yeah, I think it got the most throwaway reference of, oh, Ocon's had to go into the pits and he's retired. They didn't say why. It, yeah, it's such a strange one. It wasn't a good weekend though for Alpine. No, it, it does very much lead me into my spinner, which is P15 in Quali, then P15 for Gasly, and the aforementioned DNF for Ocon. And just what a difference a week makes after being on the podium for Gasly with Ocon's label. And it's just going back to what you were saying about Alex Albon having to chase Ocon in the driver's standings, that being maybe a bit of a tall order. We've got Singapore up next. They didn't do very well there last year, so who knows? Vegas is going to be all kinds of madness. And that's just two races where Albon just has to be Albon and just quietly nimble away and make his car very wide. I wouldn't be too surprised if he does manage to get past Ocon at the very least before the end of the year in the driver standings if Alpine keep doing what Alpine are doing. Because they either have really good weekends or they have really terrible weekends. They don't seem to have found a middle ground yet. And I don't think that's going to happen this season. I think certainly, well, if he passes Ocon, he passes Piastri at the same time. I think Piastri is likely to get ahead of Ocon and possibly again Gasly because there's only a point between the two French drivers. It's then whether Albon can really get, if Ocon does get closer, I think he's likely to pass both of them. And again, we're looking at, so we've got to look for circuits that are relatively high speed, relatively fast corners. So Singapore, not necessarily. Suzuka, yes. Qatar, yes. Kota, is very Silverstone-y, so it might work for Albon. Um, Mexico, very fast circuit. Um, Brazil could work to Albon's advantage because it is, a, especially that sort of 
final curve into the start-finish straight, which is a big curve, and then dropping down into the first turn might work to Albon's advantage because it's a tricky corner to try and defend. Then we go to Las Vegas, which looks pretty fucking high speed to me. It's a load of straights. And then we go to Abu Dhabi. So that's the Abu Dhabi and Singapore are really Alpine's only chances to defend from a Williams, which given how the seasons for them have gone is sort of surprising to say and sort of not at this point. Yeah. It's... They've had more bad races than good. I think looking back at this year, that they're just going to have to, I guess, get the team together and just say, right, lads, let's just forget what's happened last season. Let's put us behind us, focus on next season. Because as well... There are only two people that can be called in to fix this now, and it's Alain Prost and Cyril Abitable, and we all know it. Well, we did see Mattia Bonotto skulking around the paddock this weekend amid the rumours that he's going to Alpine, so... Well, that's then buggered for another couple of years. Never mind, eh? Yeah. And the problem is, is that we're so far into this season now that people have stopped upgrading this year's car and focusing on next year's car, so that Alpine isn't going to get any better. Yeah, it's... It's they're screwed, really, and you've just got to hope they've got something that's worth driving next year. Does that mean they're not coming on there? Maybe. Um, from one Top Gear reference to a well, Grand Tour reference, rather to another with the American um, Logan Sargent, and I don't want to sound like a broken record at this point, but we're getting to the point where the pattern is too strong to ignore. If it weren't for his 12th place finish in Bahrain at the start of the season, he would now be tied with, if not possibly behind, Liam Lawson. They're currently separated on countback, where Sargent's performances throughout the rest of the year have been enough to keep him ahead. But um, yeah, it's the Kiwi, despite only two races for the bottom-ranked team, is now ahead of Nick DeVries, who had done 10 races, and Daniel Ricciardo, someone with eight race wins to his name and was at one point a runner-up in the World Championship. This was a formidable driver. And Liam Lawson has come in and, on paper, purely on paper, scored them both. Um, Logan, meanwhile, is drifting further and further from his teammate as the car improves, and a lot of those improvements are coming... Uh, somewhat at the drivability of the car it's sort of taking away a few edges of the car that were quite soft and sort of just very neutral it's become a slightly more slidey car that has a rear end that takes to get some getting used to but even then when your teammate comes home seventh and you're five seconds off the car in front of you at a track where the Williams is proving to be very strong then it's hardly a good look no response my argument is so so watertight that there is simply <laughs> silence if I'm honest I was so busy focusing on everyone else's uh, everyone else's race. I didn't see Logan Fudgeon. I he, he, there were points where he seemed quite high up. I don't know if I can find like a lap by lap list. The one, the one thing I'll just say about him is that he's he's doing better in some ways than was expected of him because we all doubted if he was ready for Formula One after his Formula Two season last year. He's also a rookie. Piastri is who he's getting measured against, which is perhaps a little unfair. But also, Joe didn't do an awful lot in his first year. Okay, yes, he scored points, and we've not had that from Sargent. But again, the 
Alfa Romeo is a marginally better car than the Williams, and it is showing that you need a driver of experience and capability to get that out of the car, the performance, rather than a rookie. So I think we'll be keeping for next year, which means I've probably cursed you, Logan. Sorry about that. But it's kind of, it's it's a very easy spinner to pick if I'm going to be a little mean about it. And obviously, like you say, you don't want to keep going on about it. But also, we did choose Alpine and Stroll between us, so you didn't have much of a choice unless you were going for Hass again. Um, but I think he's kind of, he's he's in this odd no-man's land of, he does need a bit of a, an odd race to get him up there, to get a point or two. And there are a few Grand Prix coming up where that is possible because of not necessarily driver capability, but just survivability. Um, but at the same time, if he was in another team, Alpha Tauri, for example, he would have probably been gone by now. Yeah, I think if he was Nick de Vries, um over in that Alpha Tauri seat, he would have long vanished. Annoyingly, the lap by lap results aren't out at the moment, so I can't have a look back and see what the highest sergeant achieved was. But I think at one point he was in at least P10 or possibly above and then just vanished. I guess this was probably the one race where he, well, and last week as well, that was probably the sort of most likely time that he could have got points and he hasn't done it. Yeah. I think last week, it's a bit, I mean, James Bowles is saying it's it was the card's fault for crashing, but obviously we don't fully know completely what really happened. I don't think James is lying when he says that. I don't, everyone's like, oh, he's saving Logan's blushes. I'm like, uh, I think it's a bit late in the season to start doing that. Um, so I will sort of take the Dutch Grand Prix at its face value but I think that does mean that then the pressure was on Logan to do something this weekend and much like we're saying with Lance he just sort of didn't do anything stick again yeah stick with a guy rather than do something Um, speaking of drivers that did actually do something but sort of quite quietly in their own weird little way I want to kick this one off with Lawson because it is essentially the flip side to Sargent and two weekends in the car a hair's breadth from a point by the end of the race end this weekend isn't a bad place to be with rumours being that Ricardo might sit out the Singapore and Japanese Grand Prix due to their lateral intensity on his recovering hand Lawson could well have another two weekends to prove his mettle it's worth taking a pinch of salt that we had no equitable baseline to go from as Yuki didn't even make it through the formation map but regardless Regardless, as a performance on paper, it's a good weekend to be Liam Lawson, certainly. I do have a little point I want to make on this, actually, because as mentioned earlier when we were talking about him and a few other bits and pieces, he's a strong contender now. You've got to stay for Alpha Tower for 2024. And it raises an interesting point of all year, we've been assuming that Yuki's been outperforming the car, but perhaps he's just not had a strong enough teammate to challenge him slash improve him. And that's why he looks good in the car. And maybe the car is actually better than we thought it was or with the improvements that it made, how bad was it really all that kind of territory? Because if Lawson can get that close to him in practice qualifying and okay, the race is pretty much non-starter, but again, you've got to assume it would have been pretty similar in the race and only a second weekend. 
I do as much as I want Ricardo to be better and back as soon as possible. I do kind of want to see what he, he could do in such challenging circumstances, venue-wise, as Singapore and Japan are, especially if Japan is mixed conditions. And he should know Suzuka a little bit, at least, I think, because he should have been there with Super Formula already. Um, so maybe Yuki is... It would just be interesting to see what he can do with the limited time he's got left. And maybe it was slightly to Yuki's advantage that he didn't start this Grand Prix because Lawson may well have beaten him to it. And even if he didn't get points, like you say, on paper, it looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he, he knows his way around Suzuka. He's already done uh, one race there back in April and they're heading back to it at the end of the month. So it's certainly going to be a circuit he's familiar with at this point in time. And I think he would have done perhaps some pre-season testing around it as well. I can't remember where they test for Super Formula. So Lawson should have the track knowledge going into Suzuka. He won't be going into it completely blind. And certainly against Sonoda, it would be an interesting one to give that comparison against as a sort of final one before Lawson potentially looks at heading back towards Super Formula to finish up his season. He could still win the championship at Super Formula. He's got two races at Suzuka at the tail end of October. And I mean, imagine you you go to Singapore and Japan, you get points in at least one of them. He only needs more than three for that to be good and for Yuki to get nothing. And then leaves, wins Super Formula and goes, right, balls in your court, Red Bull. Which team are you putting me in? <laughs> I don't yeah, I mean, care if it's Alvatari, Red Bull, just find me a seat. He's got as late as essentially um, the US Grand Prix is his last opportunity to potentially still be in the car uh, without running into a clash as well. So, But after that hit, the Mexican Grand Prix unfortunately bumps into Super Formula. So he does have these sort of extra chances, depending on Daniel Ricciardo's recovery, to see if he can really pull this off. And if he can... Um, pull off the championship win against uh, Ritomo Miata in Super Formula and then somehow net at least a point in Formula One, he's going to be a very tasty prospect. Did Gasly win Super Formula when he went over to it? Oh, Christ, oh, that's a good question. Um, Pierre Gasly. Did he, did he, did he? I know, I feel like he must have done. Uh, 2017 Super Formula. The podcast that does its research. He didn't. No, he came second to Hiraki Ishiura. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. But he did beat Felix Rosenquist and Andre Lotterer and Nick Cassidy and Narayan Karthikeyan. But that last one isn't really something to be too surprised about. Um, Andre Lotterer doing Super Formula in 2017. Yeah. He came sixth. He won That's one so race weird. at uh, Okuyama. It's not one, yeah. But you get some interesting names crop up in Super Formula. That's what makes it a really interesting series. It's just, you always, I don't know, I guess I'm sort of stereotyping that you think they're quite young, sort of fresh from Formula 2. There's no seats in sort of Formula 1 yet. It's that sort of natural step up and in between well, 2017 was six years ago, so that would have made Andre Lotterer, um, by season's end, he wouldn't have had his birthday yet, so he, that would have made him knock off one there, knock off another six, maybe 34. Um, bear in mind that Lawson's doing it currently as a 21-year-old, so, eh. I still think you were expecting that to be a lot younger than 34. Yes, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just adding the extra comparison. <laughs> 
had he won or very nearly won Le Mans before then? Ooh, now you're asking the important questions. Um I love how she's got the internet in front of her and yet she's just putting these difficult, annoying questions in front of us. No, well, because out, will you? listeners might not assume that I'm Googling it and might just happen to know the entire racing career of Andre Lotto. Well, no, because they'll hear you Googling it as per because usual. He, he's very, I know he very, very nearly won Le Mans and it was literally, what, three minutes to go and the car conked out. It was something like that. He had already no, 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 won Le Mans you don't know three times. You were an Andre Lotterer expert normally. Andre Lotterer, prior to competing in Super Formula in 2017, had won Le Mans three times. Um, with all of them with Audi, all of them in R18s um, in 2014, 2012, and 2011, going um, first, first, and first in class and overall. He also came second overall in class in 2010 and third overall in class in 2015, again with Audi R18s, apart from in 2010, which was the R15. So, yeah, he came to Super Formula a 24 hours of Le Mans winner he'd also he'd also won the um, World Endurance Championships in 2012 um, and he had come second in it in 13, 14, 15 as well again all with Audi all in R18s which meant that he'd won well, the what endurance... we're learning here essentially is that he's better at endurance racing than single seaters yes yes yeah basically he hasn't that's the bottom he's line got, he's what he hasn't won a Formula E race, has he? No, he got very close in Mexico last year, but he was a good boy and let Pascal stay ahead of him there. He could have had him if he wanted to, I reckon, but yeah. he didn't go there. But we're getting very, very sidetracked now. Uh, what I will say is, though, how many years do you think that um, Andre Lotter competed in Super Formula 4? Is this that more than one year? more than one. Oh, sod it. Three? Higher? Six. Twelve. He competed in Super Formula from 2003 to 2017. You can't have been doing it every year, though, surely. 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Every year. He won it in 2011, came second in 2004, and uh, second in uh, 2010, 2013, and 2016, and then third in 15, 14, 09, 08, and 06. He has enough money to just do whatever the heck he wants. And he's like, yeah, I don't need to win this. I'm just going to be Andre Lotterer and just go and drive around Japan for a bit because it's nice there. Why not? Yeah, basically that that's where you, that that's his uh, driving career. I love how Elliot May set off this whole segment, and she's broken herself with this knowledge. So I think that's a bit of karma there. That's just so bizarre. And yet he can't win a Formula E race. No, it's funny should have had a Formula E race in Japan. So I don't know if they've had one in Japan or not. And so I know they've had one in Korea, but if they've not had one in Japan, maybe they should do that, get him in, because maybe he'd win then. They're having one next year, aren't they? Uh, is he on the grid for next year? Well, we don't know, because apparently he was going to leave, wasn't <laughs> he, to focus on WEC? Well, he was meant to leave last year as well, so to do that, so who knows? It'd be funny if he left and then he could have won the Japanese round. He's not been announced for the 2023-2024 Formula E World Championship and their planned rounds do include a Tokyo E-Prix, which is the 30th of March next year, for anyone that's interested. So, 
<laughs> we'll wait and see. Um, anyway, back to what we're supposed to be talking about, which isn't Andre Lotter spending over a decade in Super Formula. Um, Bottas, uh, another driver worth a mention. There you go. Yeah. Okay, we mentioned him. Well, it seems that whilst everyone else was sort of having a crazy race, he had a fairly quiet one or just got on with it. Or that's at least how the sort of TV portrayed it. And it worked. Got a point. Yeah, he just did. There's really not much else to say about that, is there? It's just he did all right. He got a point. Delivery was nice. Nice one. Wasn't it at one point when, was it the Ferraris? Was it the Ferraris fighting? Well, there was two drivers anyway fighting ahead of him and he got he ended up getting sort of so close to them that he almost unlapped himself it was one of no, the hackers that was, yeah he had prime viewing oh, of um, yeah Sainz and Leclerc battling away for pretty much the entirety of the final two thirds of the race just sat there going I knew it was a Ferrari powered engine Mm, yeah so there we go um we'll move on from our winners spinners and other drivers to our predictions and see how we did across the weekend in italy and life scored just the one point actually um third place prediction of carlos Sainz. somehow that was the one that came true although given everything else i predicted that that being the one that came it's true surprising surprising. That's the one that came true. no no in the grand scheme of things timo you did just as badly or just as well i did worse what? I thought you got a point. For what? You claimed I got pole position, just assuming Max Verstappen got pole as usual when it was Carlos Sainz. Oh, yeah. So I had yes. to edit that note for you. So I didn't actually get anything. Hang on. Yeah, that means I get... What, just yeah, I've just had to then. change yeah. mine because you've given me one for pole <laughs> and I've just taken it away from myself. Yeah, I can... I can oh, no, hang on, I've done that on the wrong I line. Don't I don't mind taking an extra point here or there, but I'm not going to be just blatantly cheating. <laughs> yeah, see, um, Tino's... Taking trying to take points away from me when he's writing the prediction reviews and Jesse's just handing them to me. I, I completely sort of went through it and went, yep, Verstappen scored pole, didn't he? Of course, that would have happened. Completely forgetting the science did that. So, um, yeah, just the one point for me, no points for Timo. Um, and for a weekend. three points for Ellie May still, though. It was amusing because I realised that without even thinking about it, I didn't go for the podium of the previous race. So, I should have got Max as a, as a win at least um, but business has been resumed for the rest of the season now that I remembered that that was what I was doing for this year either that or I've had a mad fever dream where Oscar Piastri did in fact win the Zandvoort Grand Prix so you, you not only did you break your own rule you scored nothing for it which proved to the pudding that you shouldn't cheat um, I didn't cheat you cheated for me yeah I, I, I tried to give you three point. points um, anyway um, we'll move into the F1 fantasy review and for Monza it's pretty much the same people as per usual in the top three with Francesco Rhodes getting 249 points and then second and third on 242 points it's basically the same person with two different teams it's Alex H9 and Alex H9B2 EMT Racing strong outing P5 210 points Nitro RX in a surprising P12 which is pretty good for that team that I've not touched since wherever the hell we made it with 195 points Javicate Racing P16 with 183 and on the curves P19 with 175. Overall, then, Where's Francesco the Rhodes still leading the way. Say again, sorry. No, that's not my highest ranked know. team. Mid-Beds was uh, 14th. I always think that's only May's team. She doesn't live in Mid-Bedfordshire, though. No. No, but I just assume that I always forget that that's what that stands for. So that's why I ignore it. Because I like my bed. 
Yeah, that's what I assume. It's something that you've done something basic like that, and I'm just like, yeah, that's LMA's team. That's why I ignore it, because of EMT being always higher up anyway. Uh, anyway. Overall, though, Francesca Rose is still leading the way, 4,194 points. Alex H9V2 in second with 4,188 points, and Arg in third with 4,122 points. EMT Racing P7 with 3,658 points. Don't know about mid-beds, ignored it as we've just already uh, mentioned. 3,000 far off at least. Um, on the curves, P13 with 3,166 points. And Experiment Underdog still in P33 with 1,192 points. That's not too I want to know what... I want to know... What drivers and teams are in Fran- Francisco Rhodes's? I mean, surely he's changing this every race because unless he's got Max Checo and Red Bull, he does. Yes, Max Checo, Red Bull, and- McLaren, Piastri, Alonso, Hulkenberg was what That's he had solid. for Italy. And I assume Max is on double points or something. Uh, yeah, Max is on his double points. He didn't change it going into the Dutch Grand Prix. The Belgian Grand Prix. Pretty strong again. lineup. So. Yeah, I don't think he would have really changed that. It's very much been left on autopilot. And it's doing well. Yeah. Congratulations. Congrats to him. I won't bother doing a constructors countdown because there's only been one change this week, and we've already mentioned it, it was Ferrari overtaking Aston Martin in the points. It's not even like they've done it by a short margin either. Aston Martin are on 217, Ferrari are now on 228, so they've cleared them by over 10 points, which is for Aston Martin to try and claw back a fair gulf. So that's interesting. It's the real question as to whether or not from uh, on their current trajectory, Ferrari might even catch Mercedes. Let's not get too hopeful, Jesse. You're a bit no. high there on Ferrari doing well in Italy, I think. Uh, and also, at, uh, at some point between now and our next podcast, would you be able to work out at what stage can I take the championship for our predictions review? I could probably try. Um, I think you, I think it'll be easy to figure out how soon you can guarantee second place at least. Oh, I, I think third place is certainly guaranteed. Yeah, which is yes. me. Um, yeah. I could go through and tot up the few guests we've had on, which would they're still in fourth. Um, yeah. Timo, I think you'd just be unhappy with how close to you that is overall, and the fact that we just not had many guests is the only <laughs> happy factor there. No, let, right, let's see. What have the guests achieved? Um, well, that wasn't our, what I was meaning to do now. Georgia Please scored one point nine. when we had her on. Fraser Ford scored nothing. And when I had Immy Cousins last week, she scored two. So the, if guests have scored three and I'm on 17, so it's not as close as you might think. We've had other guests earlier in the year. For reviews, yeah, but they weren't around for a preview episode. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's true. We could also tot up the predictions from the very beginning of the year when we have a spreadsheet and add them to the overall guest thing. Um, no, what the <laughs> overall, the year-long one, that's a different championship yeah. entirely. That's been yeah. Oh, is it now? Okay, I'm, I'm that's, that's very convenient for you. <laughs> it is very convenient for me because I've only got two drivers left to score podiums and you're already losing points for not predicting Pierre Gasly or Lando Norris for getting podiums. So... Uh, <laughs> Be fair, I should have only predicted Norris on that one because let's face it, Gasly, that was a fucking fluke. Yeah, it was a bit of a fluke, but you're still waiting out on Piastri, Bottas, and Albon to score points, uh, score podiums. Vegas, rather. here we come. That's my podium for Vegas. You're going to break your rule and go for Piastri, Bottas, Albon, are you? I'll decide if it's going to be that order. 
but I might switch Bottas and Albon around because Bottas will just nick third off Stroll. Mm. I've already had to red flag um, Shannon and Magdalena from it because they uh, predicted De Vries for getting a podium, so they've, they've, they've immediately lost points. There's that still one. time. You never know. Uh, uh, anyone that predicted De Vries outperforming Sonoda in the championships as well has uh, not gotten a point. Has not, there not is still time. There. You never know. The only chance you can't that say happened. with 100% certainty. Lawson could really want to do Super Formula and say, sorry, you're going to have to find another driver. Daniel Ricciardo isn't ready yet and they just have to grovel to Nick DeVries be like, look, no, we were not the nicest to you. Please come back. We need a driver. And crucially, you only allowed four drivers in any one team across a year. Alpha Tauri are already at that cap. They cannot just go and get an Ayumu Iwasa. That's why they they've got go to bring him get... back. Then he can outscore Yuki Sonoda and uh, Hey Presto. We're back. It's Nick as stupid as it sounds. Wins. The Mexican Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I recognise this track. It's a bit like one I've driven on in Formula E. <laughs> yes. Precisely. I think it's the only track it... they share, isn't it? At Monaco. Uh, of course, yeah. Monaco is a bit different as well. It's sort of tweaked, isn't it? No, I, no, I think they... Not this year it, was, it wasn't. No, and yeah. last year was, I don't think it was. Yeah, the original... When they first started doing it, it was a slightly different track, but now they've been given the provision to get, have the full Formula One circuit. Well, there we go. Um, yeah, no constructors countdown, but drivers-wise, it's quite interesting. Like I said, it's been another another weekend where we've actually had a, a changing of the order. The, the only one that I've mentioned so far where we didn't have that was Spain, um, where no one changed order. Um, and this weekend, the changing of the order has come from Leon Lawson, who has jumped ahead of Nick De Vries and Daniel Ricciardo. So well done to him um, for being the only driver to make any position changes this weekend for finishing 11th. Um, which perfectly sums up the chaos of Formula One. A good point to wrap up the podcast on. Has anyone got any final points they'd like to throw out into the ether? Is Timo frozen? No. I think Timo's frozen. No, he's not. He's shaking his head there. He was just was gonna, really still. I was going to be like, oh, who was the previous Kiwi before Liam Alston? But then I realised it's Brendan Hartley and it wasn't really that entertaining. No. Well, he did have that really impressive Terrible crash. Into, yeah, he did have that really impressive crash into uh, uh, Brooklands at uh, Silverstone, though. I was thinking yeah, he was one again, in Canada. Another driver that's much better at Le Mans, or not, or WEC, sorry. Yes, yeah, because he won with Toyota a few years ago, didn't he, I believe? He won last year. Yeah. Like I said, he won the other year with Toyota. So I was. Correct enough. Um, Timo, where can the people find you? Smooth as ever. I can be found over on Is It Fast on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Paddock Sorority, and of course, Instagram. Ellie May, where can the people find you? Well, you can find me on Instagram, where I do the graphics for the podcast. If you're lucky, and I remember to, because I was meant to post it today and I forgot, you may get some concourse content. Uh, if I have time as well, I really want to get some TikToks out of both Silverstone and Concourse, and then we're off to Goodwood Revival in later on in the week. I'm not excited at all. 
you're very excited about it. It is very obvious. Um, yeah, three days at the Goodwood Revival, fancy dress and scorching heat as well. It's going to be toasty. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to wearing a petticoat in that weather, but we move. Jesse, where can the people find you? Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTubers at Jesse on Cars. And you can find me writing for Classic Car Weekly coming out in this week's edition. We've got a preview of the Good Revival, the Triumph TR at 70, plus our usual array of news features. All good stuff and worth picking up. And I think that neatly wraps up this episode reviewing the Italian Grand Prix. There'll be more later this week from Timo and I as we look back on the feeder series from Italy and a little bit from Zandvoort because I never got a chance to. And uh, then it's off to Goodwood we go. And there will be a podcast reviewing Goodwood hopefully on a Monday. So um, enjoy that and we will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>